We say Alleluia is the only word that is the same in every single language, and I think that's true because everywhere I've been um, in different parts of the world, which is only really about two, unless you count Canada, then it's three. Different parts of the United States, and then my parents, a multi-ethnic church in Brooklyn, New York, um, there with people who don't have English as their first language. There, Alleluia is something everybody understands. And uh, there's no coincidence that that is one of the things we will be saying around the throne room of God in the book of Revelation. Please open your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 13. Hebrews chapter 13. And as you're turning there, this Friday, March 24th at 6.30 p.m. at the Oceanside High School, um, there will be a prayer meeting uh, put together by Main Ministry Outreach Center inviting uh, local area churches to pray for our youth. In particular, March 24th, 6.30 p.m. at the Oceanside High School. The one in Rockland, what used to be Rockland High School. Yeah. Hebrews chapter 13 and verses... 10 through 14 is our text this morning, and if you're visiting with us, uh, we are going to have a little shorter message this morning and partake of the Lord's Supper. Things are a little different this morning, but glad you're here, and uh, glad you are um, engaging with us in the Word of God. Hebrews chapter 13, verse 10, we have an altar whereof they have no right to eat which serve the tabernacle. For the bodies of those beasts whose blood is brought into the sanctuary by the high priest for sin are burned without or outside the camp. Wherefore, Jesus also, that he might sanctify or make holy the people with his own blood suffered without the gate or outside the camp. Let us go forth, therefore, unto him without or outside the camp, bearing his reproach. For here have we no continuing city. But we seek one to come. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, as we um, see the point of this passage for us this morning, I pray that your Holy Spirit would write its truths on our heart as you promised to do in your new covenant. Lord, I pray that uh, the word of God would, um, uh, would, would reach all the way to the heart. That it would not just get to our heads and information, but it would reach to our hearts and then would uh, move to, uh, to application and to a real uh, uh, heart consideration and heart searching here of uh, where our allegiances are and who our Savior is and what He's accomplished for us. Would you make it very clear and evident in our lives that we have decided to follow Jesus and it is not just sitting on a bed of good intentions. And Lord, I ask that um, the... The, uh, the life of Jesus uh, would be evident and seen in this body and in your church. I pray that uh, as uh, we head out during the week, uh, after this time of uh, formal assembly together, Lord, that the fragrance of Christ would be on us. That uh, uh, though we understand to some it is the stench of death, and to others it is the stench of uh, the, 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 the savor of, of life, Lord, we pray that uh, we would be faithful in bearing the truth of Jesus in our words and in our actions and in our different networks of people in, in our homes, in our, in our neighborhoods, in our work, in our schools, um, and uh, in our families. Lord, I pray that people will know that we have been with Jesus and Jesus is with us. 
In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So the author of Hebrews is saying, we have an altar which those who minister at the tabernacle have no right to eat. And when he talks about an altar, he's, he is, is talking about a place where sacrifices are held. And he's saying, we have the place where the sacrifice that is once and for all has been held. And I believe he's talking about Jesus and His work. All along he has talked about the insufficiency of the, of the physical uh, uh, reminders that pointed to the greater reality of Jesus in the law. That they could not take away sin and uh, sins, uh, the sacrifices of bulls and goats and, and lambs could not take away sins, but they pointed to the once and for all final sacrifice. Those things in the law, like such as verse 11 talks about the high priest who would carry the blood of the animals in the most holy place as a sin offering and then would take the body of that animal and he'd burn it outside the camp. And he uses those pictures there that he is explained in Hebrews 9 and 10 very sufficiently to remind us that Jesus also suffered outside of the city gate. This morning, first of all, I'd like you to see the exclusiveness of Christ. The exclusiveness of Christ. Notice what he says in verse 10. We have an altar whereof they have no right to eat which serve the tabernacle. What he's laying out in front of us is there are only two ways. There is Jesus' way, God's way, and there is man's way. Uh, the, the altar that was mentioned here is a sacrifice for sin made, and he's probably referring to Leviticus chapter 16 on the Day of Atonement when the priest would, 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 would slay the animal and, and he would take its blood and bring it and sprinkle it on the mercy seat, and then uh, he would take the body of that animal and then he would put it outside of the camp where the refuse went, where the garbage went, as the one on whom the sin would be laid, and then he would put his hands on a goat called a scapegoat. The would, and then send that scapegoat that was still alive out into the wilderness, symbolizing our sin that's been removed. He says we have an altar that is incompatible with man's way. This altar is Jesus and the work of Christ. Jesus is exclusive. He says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man can come unto the Father but through me. There is no other way to God. And we have the exclusiveness of Christ who says, those that are still going man's way and that are still trying to earn their favor with God and that are still trying to go after the Old Testament law as their way of being right with God have no right to eat at this table at this sacrifice you see the altar of Jesus the sacrifice of Jesus is the only way man can connect to God through Jesus Christ Jesus Christ is where our connection to God happens it's not through my church attendance. It's not through partaking of these elements here. It's not through the, uh, the ritual of baptism. All those things are wonderful things, but they point to the greater reality. Jesus is the only way. And so he can say uh, in verse 10, We have an altar whereof they have no right to eat, which serve the 
no right to eat. What does it mean to eat at this altar? Well, some have suggested that he's referring to uh, the, the, the Lord's Supper, and I think in the context here and in what he said in previous chapters, he's not talking about physical things at all. No, no. Jesus said, I am the bread of life. Jesus said, unless you eat my flesh and drink my blood. Jesus is talking about feasting on Him. Jesus is talking about being welcomed with Him, being accepted with Him, friendship with Him. He's talking about a consumption of Jesus. And this morning, because Jesus is exclusive, we need to ask this question for all in the audience this morning. Is Jesus in you? Because there is no other way to the Father but through Jesus. He makes a very clear distinction, doesn't he? There's a restriction here that's not popular in our political day of restrictions, but he says this, where you have an altar whereof they have no right to eat. No right to eat. Jesus is the only one who earns that right for us to fellowship with Him. For us to consume upon Jesus. There's a restriction here of going our own way and not going God's way. There's a forbidden element here. No rights. But Jesus welcomes all those to the Father who come through Him. So in that sense, there is an inclusiveness to Jesus, isn't there? But it is on His terms, is it not? It is on His terms. And I wonder this morning, is Jesus' life in you a reality for you today? Is His life in you a reality as we stand and speak this morning? Kids, you cannot trust your parents for your salvation. Uh, you cannot trust your spouses for your salvation. As close as they may be to the Lord, you are not going to heaven on anybody else's coattails. You are not going to Christ on anybody else's terms. You are going to Christ on His terms. And His terms is He is the only way. Is this reality for you? Notice, He says in verse 11, For the bodies of those beasts whose blood is brought into the sanctuary by the high priest for sin are burned without the camp. Wherefore, Jesus also, that He might sanctify the people with His own blood, suffered without the gate. Secondly, we have very clearly here the exile of Christ. The exile of Christ. We're not told um, uh, the, the details of where the cross was. We're told it was the hill of Golgotha. We're told in John 19 that they went outside the city. But here specifically, the writer draws that picture that's alluded to in other parts of the Gospels. And you'll notice in this section here, he uses the word outside or without three times. And that's the point of his message here. And verse 12, or verse 11, he says, without or outside the camp. In verse 12, Jesus suffered without or outside the gate. And verse 13, let us go forth therefore into him without or outside the camp. There's a stigma that is attached to being connected to Jesus Christ, isn't there? To those who have the wisdom of the world, the preaching of the cross is foolishness. It's ridiculous. 
There is a shame. When Jesus Christ was taken outside of the city, He was taken to where the dump was. He was taken to where the criminals would be executed. He was taken to the place of curse. The Old Testament law said cursed was anybody who hung upon a tree. He was crucified not by Himself, but He was crucified by two malefactors, two thieves. It was a shame. He was stripped of His clothing. He died as a criminal. He was accused of being a blasphemer. And the way Christianity tries to attract people today with all the flashing lights and everything else, metaphorically and physically speaking, is a far cry from the stigma of Jesus Christ in many ways. In essence, He came unto His own people and His own people received Him not. He was prophesied as a suffering servant who would be despised and rejected of men. A man of sorrows and well acquainted with grief. And Jesus was exiled from his own people, was he, was he not? Even exiled from his own followers who scattered, didn't they? Some denied him. But look at his point. Verse 13. Let us go forth therefore unto him outside the camp, bearing his reproach. Why was Jesus willing to do this? The previous verse tells us in verse 12, Jesus also, that he might sanctify or make the people set apart, make the people holy with his own blood suffered outside the camp, outside the gate. In 1662, Charles II, the King of England, during the Puritan age, uh, passed an act called the Great Ejection Act, where he demanded that the pulpits preach and teach in England what he wanted them to preach and teach. And those who did not, because they did not preach what he dictated, were not allowed that when they died to be buried in the city limits. And so families of some of the pastors in England would then bury their loved ones outside of the cities. It was a place of scorn. A place of scorn. I was, in my own personal devotions, uh, reading Psalm 1 and, and Psalm 2 and meditating on that uh, earlier in this week. And uh, Psalm 2 talks about how the, how, the, how the kingdoms of this earth have rallied up against Yahweh, have, have, have stood against Him and His power and, and mocking Him. And the tables are turned at the end of the passage in Psalm chapter 2 when the one who sits high in the heavens will laugh. The tables will be turned. But in Jesus' life, He was one who knew what exile was. He was one who knew what it was to not be very popular. He was one who knew what it was to not be politically correct. He was one who knew what it was to speak the truth and to say it no matter what. Jesus 
was exiled, ashamed, the stigma. But look at the point of it in verse 13. The writer uses that to say, let us go forth and find Jesus where? Outside the camp. Outside the camp. And you know what the writer is saying to us? He's reminding those Jews who he's writing to who who would be tempted to go back into uh, the... Uh, the, the trappings of the Levitical law and and uh, uh, all the rituals that they had come to think would earn them favor with God. He's saying, if you want to find Jesus, you got to leave that. You got to leave what's comfortable. And I wonder this morning, in our day and age, we're probably not having people being pulled into into Levitical law, but we're having people pulled into comfort zones, aren't we? I mean, America is all about comfort, isn't it? And I wonder what the Holy Spirit is impressing on your heart. What is He saying to you as He enters your life? Is He saying there are rooms that He is not welcome in? What are the doors that are barred and locked? Where are the places in your life that you know need to be open to Jesus? Uh, Where are the things in your life that you are seeking for your own comfort instead of Jesus and His truth and His plan and His desire to build up the church and the advance of the Gospel? What are the sins in your life that you know are holding you back from full obedience to Jesus? Have you made your electronic devices your God and you are chained to that? It's a reality in our day and age, isn't it? We can't go anywhere without having our our phones buzzing or notifications or checking what's going on. Uh, what are you living for? Uh, is your is your career advancement uh, everything that you are pouring your life to? Is your dear family, which is so important, but can sometimes be uh, uh, more important than it needs to, everything that you are living for? Or is it Jesus who allows these things to be part of your lives, but He to be the Lord and Master of them all? Is it your health? We need to take care of our bodies, don't we? But what is it that is ruling and mastering you? Jesus says, you'll find me away from comfort. You'll find me outside of what's popular. You'll find me outside the camp. And when you find him outside the camp, he says, you'll bear his reproach. Peter puts it this way, and I'm paraphrasing. He says, it should come to you as a surprise that if you're following Jesus as an exile, exiled out of the city of man, on your way to the city of God, if you find yourself as an exile, it should not come as a surprise that you face persecution, mockery, And when we face those things and are tested with those things, the test of our allegiance is our next step. When you're faced with pressure, when you're faced with difficulty that causes you to choose between the Lordship of Christ and my own fulfillment, my own comfort, my own flesh, your next step will determine where you stand, won't it? Your next step will tell you, okay, who do I really love? Jesus speaks to Peter after after his resurrection, is restoring Peter after Peter denied him three times. 
Jesus asks him three times, Do you love me more than... And he lists things, doesn't he? And this passage here is saying, What do you love more than Jesus? Or put it the other way, Do you love Jesus more than these things? We will find Jesus outside our comfort zones. Because we have been united to Jesus as exiles too. Turn with me to 1 Peter chapter 1. And verse 1. Peter, writing to believers. And verse 1 says, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to the strangers scattered through Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. He calls them strangers, which could, could really be translated sojourners or travelers. And it wasn't because they had chosen that way of life and driving around the country in an RV. No, they were scattered because they had chosen to, uh, to associate with Jesus. And when you choose to associate with Jesus, there are repercussions in life, aren't there? Some of you have faced those repercussions in your families. Some of you have had to make decisions in your jobs that were not popular, but you knew were right, and you had to identify with Jesus and His ways, and it was difficult. But folks, outside the camp, and following Jesus outside the camp, gives us, is held together and is motivated by verse 14 in Hebrews chapter 13. Where after he tells us to go find Jesus outside of the camp and bear his reproach, and verse 14, he says this, For here, on this level, have we no continuing city, but we seek one to come. And so thirdly, we have the enjoyment of Jesus, the reward here. The reward. On this level, there is not a city, there is not a kingdom that will not one day come to an end. Right? We did the story of the Bible today. We talked about some of the uh, some of the kingdoms that have, some of the most powerful kingdoms on this earth. Um, we talked about the Assyrian kingdom, no more, gone. Babylonian kingdom, no more. Medes and Persians, no more. Greek, no more. Roman Empire, no more. USA, one day, will be no more. USSR is no more. It's something else now. Uh, The Chinese empires, no more. There is no continuing city, no everlasting city on this earth. And he wants them to remember that. Because if your hope is anchored in something that's always changing, then your hope is only secure as that is. And when it changes, your, your foundation crumbles, and there is no security in that. But if your hope is built in something that is eternal, that is untouchable, where Jesus says, where moss and rust cannot touch it and corrupt it, and thieves cannot break it and steal, that's security, isn't it? How many of you like your 401k in that? That's security. Here we have no continuing city, but we seek one to come. 
We seek one to come. And however it plays out in the end of the book of Revelation and, and the descriptions in Revelation chapter 21 and 22, uh, we understand this, we understand this very clearly, that it will reign. It is untouchable by evil. In Revelation 21, he says, And I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth were passed away, and there was no more sea. And I, John, saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down from God out of heaven, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a great voice out of heaven saying, Behold, the dwelling place or the tabernacle of God is with men, and He will dwell with them, and they shall be His people, and God Himself shall be with them and be their God, and God shall shall wipe away all tears from their eyes, and there shall be no more death, neither sorrow nor crying, neither shall there be any more pain, for the former things are passed away. And he that sat upon the throne said, Behold, I make all things new. And he said unto me, Write, for these words are true and faithful. Abraham wandered to the land that God was going to show him. And he never fully inhabited that land, did he? But the reason he was able to follow God and obey God in his promises is because Abraham looked for a city that had foundations whose builder and maker is God. And I wonder if the cities in our lives that we are looking for are made by God. And if they are made by man or made by created things, and that is what we are living for, it's going to be pretty hard to go meet Christ outside of the city, isn't it? What in your life needs to be abandoned so Jesus can be fully embraced? In Luke 9, Jesus says this to the crowds that were following. He said, If any man will come after me, let him deny himself and take up his instrument of execution, the cross. Take up his cross and follow me. And that is what this book has been about over and over and over and over again throughout the book of Hebrews. Discern your values. The writer of Hebrews is saying, Jesus is greater. Jesus is better. He is the resurrected King. He is the one who brings us in the loving embrace of the Father. He is the one who the Father sent because of His extravagant love. John 3 tells us. And He is exclusive. There is no other way. He has been exiled. And on this life, and on this earth, while sin and evil is still present, that will be our experience. But the joy, the enjoyment of Jesus, and the future city, the the dwelling He is preparing for us, without the exile, the tables will be turned is offered and given to us as a reminder and a motivation that it is true and it is worth it all. And He is worthy, as Gary saying this morning, to be praised. So as you walk out your faith, if you are going to live for Jesus, you need to understand that there is risk and there is reward, and the reward is far greater than any risk. The risk is following Jesus outside the camp. The promise is, 
it's always way better. It's always way better. Though Paul says in other passages it might not seem that way. That the glory that is to be revealed is far better than the sufferings of this present time. Let us go forth therefore unto him outside the camp, bearing his reproach. For here have we no continuing city, but we seek one to come. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we praise and thank you for the work of the cross. That God loved the world in such a way that he gave his one and only Son. That whoever rests and trusts in him shall not perish but have life that is everlasting. Thank you for what you've done for us in being exiled and taking the shame of the cross and calling us to bid farewell to the distractions and the things that we live for And say as we sang this morning, all I have is Christ. Paul says in Philippians 3 that I may know Him and the power of His resurrection and His sufferings be made conformable unto His death. Lord, I pray that the realities and the enjoyment of Jesus would help us filter out what we live for. And thank you for the opportunity to survey the cross this morning. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. I'd like us to stand before we take the Lord's Supper here and sing... Uh, when I survey the wondrous cross, number 243, and as our um, deacons are uh, getting things set up and making their way up here, let's contemplate the, the cross. Uh, 243 will stand and sing, When I Survey the Wondrous Cross. Mm-hmm.